Some of you know this, and uh, some of you may not be aware that if you want to, you can actually ski here in College Station at Texas A&M. I don't mean water skiing, in fact. I mean you can actually participate in downhill skiing on the A&M campus. Uh, Let me show you. This is Mount Aggie. Uh, Mount Aggie may be one of the only places in the United States where you can also downhill ski in tank tops and shorts. Uh, As you would guess, there's not actually snow up there on Mount Aggie. In fact, you can see the instructor. That's actually Mike Hannock. He goes to our Anderson campus often. He is spraying it down uh, with water to keep it slick so that you can ski. And so, so students can take this skiing class as one of their kinesiology classes at A&M, uh, but you also, I understand, you could go and you, you could pay and you can ski down this. It's 35 feet tall and it's really pretty cool. I mean, it's really pretty neat that right here in College Station you can learn to ski. Now, a lot of people go and they, they take the class or they learn to ski so that they can then go to Vail or Aspen or Breckenridge or something along those lines and ski in the mountains. Mount Aggie is awesome for what it is, but it's not actually a real mountain. I know that may shock you. It's not actually snow. It's not actually uh, what you do when you go to Breckenridge or Aspen or Vail. So if all you ever experience, if all you've ever experienced of skiing is Mount Aggie, it's fantastic for the purpose it's intending to accomplish. But it's not this. If you really want to understand the glories of skiing, you need to go to the mountains, right? You need to go to where there is snow and experience what it is. And if all you'd ever experienced was Mount Aggie, you might think, that was fantastic, that was amazing, and it is. But then you're going to show up in Colorado, and you're going to begin to ski, and you're going to go, oh, this is what skiing's supposed to be. This is how much more glorious skiing can be than going down a 35-foot hill in College Station, Texas. Now, why do I share that? Because over the last several months, we've been going through the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. And as we walk through the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, we have seen some really cool things. We have seen God do some amazing things in in the lives of the people of Israel. He led them out of Egypt He inflicted these ten plagues on the the king of Egypt and on the people of Egypt to, to get his people out. He parted the Red Sea. I mean, that's huge. He parted the Red Sea right in the middle, and all the Israelites walked right through the middle of the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness. He provided food from heaven. He gave them the law, and as God spoke the law to Moses and the Ten Commandments to Moses, the people of Israel, they could see the glory of God up on Mount Sinai shining And so if you were in the nation of Israel, as they moved out of Egypt and toward the promised land, you saw some amazing stuff. And often I've read the Old Testament and I've thought, I just wish I could have seen some of that stuff. But here's what we see as we move into the New Testament. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning as we wrap up our series. The scripture tells us that when Jesus arrived on the scene, the glory that Jesus demonstrates The truthfulness of God that Jesus proclaims, the grace of Jesus Christ, his glory is so much greater than the glory of God we see in Moses. What that means is if you and I have the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, 
we have actually gotten to see and learn about and experience a greater glory even than all of that stuff God did in the Old Testament. So that, so that the nation of Israel, they would say, the law is fantastic. The glory of God is amazing. And they would be right. The law was fantastic for the purpose it was intended to accomplish. The law was good. But the law is just a shadow of the glory of God. The law pales in comparison to Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we wrap up our series. And here's where, where I want us to go is, is as we move into this season of Christmas where we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the, the incarnation, the becoming flesh of the second person of the Trinity. I want us to leave the room this morning with a sense of awe and gratitude that you would say, no, you know, I wasn't there when the Israelites departed from Egypt, but I'm right here where I see in history the unbelievable glory of God in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me if I believe in Jesus. When you get to the New Testament, you run into passages like this one from 1 Peter. Peter says this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter says, in the Old Testament, as the prophets are writing, as Moses is writing, as Isaiah and Jeremiah are writing, as all of these great prophets who are seeing the glories of God, as they're writing, they're actually looking ahead and they're going, I'm looking ahead to figure out when is the Messiah going to come? When is the promised king going to come? And, and Peter says, they realize they're serving you. They're serving me. Even the angels long to understand more deeply the mysteries of God in Jesus Christ. So this morning what we're going to talk about is how much greater is Jesus than Moses. So that as we move into Christmas, my prayer for us over the next several weeks is as we're opening presents, for example, we reflect deeply on the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. As we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that we don't just let those words wash past us, but instead we say, how privileged are we? Scripture says, you and I in this room have seen greater things than the Israelites saw who were wandering the desert with Moses. So my prayer is we'll pause at Christmas and reflect on the awe of Jesus Christ. Let me walk through them this morning, a few reasons why Jesus is so much greater than Moses. Here's the first one. Moses spoke for God. Jesus is God. Moses spoke for God, but Jesus is God. Moses is, is a prophet. He's somebody who speaks on behalf of God. And yet, as Moses was about to die, Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. Remember, when you get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, because of Moses' sin, he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. So as he's about to depart from the scene, he says this, Deuteronomy 18, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. 
The Lord said to me, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. That is like you, Moses. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. What is Moses saying? He says, I've been speaking for God. So Moses would go up onto Mount Sinai or Moses would go into the tent of meeting. God would speak to him face to face. And then Moses would come out and tell the people what God wanted them to know. But as Moses is departing the scene, he says, hey guys, somebody else is coming, another prophet, another person who will speak for God. Well, as you walk through the Old Testament, you actually see a lot of prophets, right? So you've got guys like Samuel, and then Elijah, and Elisha, and then you have these writing prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and so on, going all the way up to Malachi. And so there's prophet after prophet after prophet. And they they fall within this pattern of these prophets who speak for God. And for the most part, the people didn't listen to them. Then you get to the New Testament and you have a prophet emerge. His name is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he says, I want to tell you what's coming. He says, there's somebody coming. There's a speaker for God coming. There's somebody coming to represent God. He says, the the sandals of whom I'm not even uh, able to untie. Somebody so great. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, and nor are all the prophets that came before, and that's Jesus. So that when you get to Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter, in a speech before the nation of Israel, he's going to say, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Look at this, Acts chapter 3. Moses said, what? The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. In other words, Peter says, I want you to understand this. When Jesus came and he he spoke and he lived as God had called him to live, he lived a perfect life and then he died for our sins and then he rose again. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate fulfillment. If you want to really know what God wants to say to you, you look at Jesus. So as you move through the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews then says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us, how? In his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In other words, there were a lot of prophets. But God finally says, if you really want to hear me, you're going to have to know my Son. If you really want to know what God wants to say to you, you look at Jesus. You listen to Jesus. He is the ultimate fulfillment of what Moses said. The ultimate prophet. This is why John chapter 1, John begins his book. He says, in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Why is Jesus called the Word? Because he is the living embodiment of all that God wants to say to us. And then John will go on and he says, and the word became flesh. When we say Jesus was incarnated, that's literally what that means. The word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. He lived among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's what I want to say. As we talk about Moses spoke for God, 
Jesus is God. Here's, here's the issue. When you read through the, the law, when you read through the Pentateuch, here's what you see, is that between God and the Israelites, there was always a mediator. Moses always spoke on behalf of God. And in fact, at one point, God's glory uh, demonstrates itself to the people. And the people go, hey, Moses, don't let God speak to us directly anymore. We're afraid of him. You go up and you talk to God and you just tell us what God wants to say. And God says, you know what? They're right. They should not have, at this point, unmediated access to hear my voice because they're sinful. And so there's always this mediation. Those of you who have more than one child, maybe you've experienced something like this. One kid comes to be an advocate for one of the other kids. So imagine for just a minute our middle child, Abigail, she walks up to me. And she says, hey, Daddy, Samuel would like to know if he can go outside and play. And I say, well, has he cleaned his room? And she goes, hold on just a minute. She goes back to the other room. I hear talking. She comes back. He says, yes. He says he has cleaned his room. What do I say? Has he cleaned his room according to the standards of the book of cleaning of your father? Right? Is it good enough? So she goes back and I hear them talking again. And she comes back and she goes, what are the standards? He wants to know what has to be done. Now we can go back and forth like that all day long, right? But eventually what's going to happen, the most effective way to communicate is for me to get up off of my chair and walk into his room and talk to him face to face and say, Samuel, here are the standards. In fact, why don't you come over to my room and I will show you the standards of cleanliness, That not I, but your mother has instituted in our household. (laughs) I want you to know. And then we can communicate face to face. See, this is what was going on all throughout the Old Testament was that uh, the, the relationship between God and his people was always mediated. God would speak to Moses or God would speak to a prophet and then the prophet would come and speak to the people. But eventually when we get to the New Testament, I love the way John begins his gospel because he says, look, in the very beginning was the Word. Jesus always was with God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. But then he says the Word became flesh. He took on flesh and blood. Finally, God says, I want you to know me so much that I'm going to send my only son. If you want to know what God wants to say to you, you look at Jesus. What does God want to say to you in Jesus? Well, Jesus proclaims and lives, first of all, the perfect holiness of God. Remember earlier in the semester, we talked about the holiness of God. That Jesus does everything set apart for God's purposes. He does nothing wrong. But in Jesus, God also says to us this, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. I want you to know me so much, and I love you so much that I'm going to send my son. So God in the flesh gets up and comes to us. So the scripture says that that Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses speaks for God, but Jesus is God. He is the living word of God. Secondly, Moses was a great leader. But Jesus is a perfect king. 
Moses really is a great, great leader. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy tells us Moses is one of the best, if not the best leaders that the nation of Israel ever knew. Deuteronomy chapter 34, the book of Deuteronomy ends like this. Since that time, that is since Moses died, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. Now remember, Deuteronomy 18, Moses has said, a prophet's going to come and he's going to be like me. As the book ends, uh, somebody else after Moses' death writes this down. He goes, guess what? Since Moses died, no other prophet has come like Moses. Not yet. Whom the Lord knew face to face for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for all the mighty power, and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Moses met with God face to face. Moses performed amazing signs. Moses led them out of Egypt into the wilderness toward the promised land. Moses delivered to them the law. Moses is a great, great leader. And to top it all off, Moses is the humblest man who's ever walked the earth. It says, now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I don't know how many of you have ever seen uh, either the old version or the new version of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. And if you remember from Beauty and the Beast, the antagonist, his name is Gaston. Right, Gaston, he's handsome, he's strong. There's a whole song about him. No one's slick as Gaston, no one's quick as Gaston. No one's next as incredibly thick as Gaston. For there's no man in town half as manly, perfect, a pure paragon. But he's not, is he? Because he's arrogant and he's mean. And so the protagonist, of course, is the beast who is physically unappealing, but has this deep character of kindness and humility. Now you imagine you take Gaston's good looks, his talent, his strength, and you merge it with the humility, the kindness, and the love of the beast, and you'd have a perfect leader. The way that the Old Testament speaks of Moses, that's the kind of guy he was. Strong, bold, followed God, did great signs and wonders, and yet he's deeply humble. So I don't want to understate how amazing a leader Moses is. But look at this. When you get into the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, the writer says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. He says Moses did his job. Moses did what he was supposed to do. He was a servant of God and he was a good servant of God. He spoke the word of God. He urged the people to be a kingdom of priests unto God, that is to represent God amongst all the nations, to mediate between God and the nations around them, to show everybody what does the holiness of God look like? What does the love of God look like? What does the truth of God look like? So Moses did a great job. But the writer of Hebrews now says, look, if you think Moses was fantastic, you got to check out Jesus. 
If you were excited about the kingdom Moses promised, remember, because Moses told the people, you're going to go into a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And if you obey, God's going to bless you. God's going to give you victory over your enemies. Your crops are going to grow. Your children are going to thrive. It's this wonderful kingdom. If you liked that kingdom, wait till you see the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. Because here's the deal. The kingdom that Moses promised, as great as it was, it was bound by geography. It was bound by ethnicity. It was bound by time. And it was very subject to the sins of the people. What happened to Moses? Moses died. Why didn't Moses get to go into the promised land, into that kingdom? Because he sinned against God. Because he lost control of his temper and disobeyed. And so you have a succession of leaders who emerge in the nation of Israel, prophet after prophet, and king after king. And each one in turn sins against God, and they die, and another king emerges. Some of them do well, most of them don't. But they all die, they all sin, they all fall short, king after king after king. And so as you move through the rest of the Old Testament, The people of God begin to go, where is the king who will give us a kingdom that won't ever end? Where is the king who will perfectly follow God and not disobey? Where is the king who won't disappoint us by dying? And so you run into passages like this one in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says, wait. Because here's what's coming. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. You may remember in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 32, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he says, hey, Mary, you're going to have a baby, a baby conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he says, that child, he will sit on the throne of his father, David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. So Moses is a great leader. Jesus is this perfect king. Jesus lives a perfect life. He dies. He rises again. He ascends into heaven. And then as we get to the end of the story in the book of Revelation, you remember Jesus is going to return. And he's going to establish his authority, not only over Israel, but over all the nations of the earth. He's going to enforce righteousness and justice once and for all. But as Jesus returns, notice this, Revelation chapter 19. He comes down out of heaven, riding on a white horse. And look at this, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. What is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. The greatest king in all of history. King over the universe. Moses, he's a good leader. One of the best. Jesus is the eternal and perfect king. That's who we celebrate as we sing these Christmas songs. The baby in the manger 
will one day return to be the forever king of the universe. For all who know Jesus Christ, you will be a part of his kingdom forever. A kingdom not bound by time, not bound by geography, and not subject to our sin, because in Jesus Christ, our sin is taken away. And that leads me to my third point this morning then. Moses is a great leader, but Jesus is a perfect king. Thirdly, Moses gave the law, but Jesus gives us life. Moses gave the law, but Jesus gives us life. John chapter 1, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. I want to be clear. John is not saying that the law was bad, and he's not saying that there was no grace and certainly no truth in the law. That's not what he's getting at. He's not saying, okay, look, in the Old Testament, everything was a lie, and in the New Testament, everything is true. Or in the Old Testament, it was all law, no grace, and the New Testament is all grace, no law. That's not what he's getting at. Instead, here's what he's saying. Moses gives the law, and then the people of Israel, they rightly saw the law as a fantastic gift. Remember, like we talked about with Mount Aggie, it's good for what it's made for. And what the law did, the law revealed the standards of God. The law revealed the character of God. The law said, if you want to represent God, if you want to know God, this is what he's like. This is what you've got to do. The law was good. But the law wasn't sufficient. The law wasn't ultimate. What was the problem with the law? Well, that's a trick question, actually. There was no problem with the law. The law was given by God. The problem's with us. The problem is with the people of the law. In fact, when the law is given, there's, it, there's nothing particularly complex about it. These are good rules. You read the Ten Commandments. Only worship God. That's, that's a good rule. It's not extremely difficult to understand or even really to obey. Don't kill people. I think we can all agree. Don't do that. It's a good rule. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. These laws are good laws. I don't know if you've ever seen a warning sign on a product or in a public place that you thought, that's a really good rule, but also very obvious. I don't know why they would need that sign, right? So maybe it is you get a package and there's those little silica packets and it says, do not eat. And you go, it never occurred to me to eat it. But what happens, you see that and you go, I do wonder what it tastes like, though. I wonder what it tastes like. There's something in me that when I see that rule, I want to step across it. But also, people put up these obvious types of rules. Why? Because somebody somewhere has already violated it. And so they go, we're going to make a rule just so you know. Uh, Several years ago, on a bus in London, somebody took a, a photo of this sign. Stabbing prohibited. That's a good rule. If you're on a bus, I think it's a good thing to be like, hey, just in case we're not clear, no stabbing. (laughs) And now what's interesting about this is I look at it and I go, who needs to be told that? You know that. In fact, here's what I would say. The people who are stabbing people on the bus, it's not for lack of information. It's not because they think it's okay and they're going to see the sign and go, oh, I'm not supposed to do that, right? We know what's the problem. The problem's not the rule. The problem is us, right? And the odds are are 
probably at least 50-50, you've sat on a bus or sat in a subway or in traffic and you've thought about stabbing. (laughs) Maybe you haven't done it, I hope not. But there's something in us that's broken. See, that was the problem with the law. The law was good. The rules weren't that complicated. But the people are sinful. So here's what happens is God provides provision for the people that if you violate the law, you can bring an animal to the tabernacle or then later to the temple and you offer that up to God and it atones or it covers over your sin so that you don't experience the judgment of God. You don't experience death right that minute when you sin. God provides a way. But here is the problem that You're going to sin again tomorrow and the next day and the next week. And so there's just a constant need for offerings so that when you get to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews will say, look, the priests, they had to stand in the temple day after day after day after day. If you were a priest on duty, you didn't get to sit down. There were no easy chairs in the holy place because you're always standing up day after day after day because there are not enough animals to cover all the sin. Tomorrow there will always be another one that's needed. But then look at this. The writer of Hebrews, he says this, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, look what he did. He sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus makes one offering. He offers himself as fully God and fully man. Jesus is the only offering sufficient to cover the sins of every man and woman. Then it says he rose again. By rising again, Jesus demonstrates that God had accepted the offering. That sin and death, the consequence of sin, they were defeated. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And I love this. The author of Hebrews goes, Jesus goes into heaven and goes, hey, where's my chair? I've done a lot. Let me sit down. And he sits down at the right hand of God. Because the work of taking care of our sin, it's all done. So Moses gave the law and it revealed a lot about who God is. It revealed God's standards. But what happened is the law could never fix us. It couldn't take away our sin. It couldn't empower us to obey. I can tell you to obey all day long, but I can't give you the strength or the power to do it. What Jesus does with one offering, he cleanses our sin rises again, ascends into heaven. And Jesus said, now I'm going to send the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that in the beginning hovered over the waters as God was speaking the world into creation. The Spirit of God that moved amongst the people of Israel as they wandered in the desert that parted the sea for them. I'm going to send the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And he's going to live in you. So that Romans 8 now says this, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You want to know why Jesus is greater than Moses? What Moses brought was good. What Moses brought was from God. But Jesus brings eternal life that never ends and the power to do God's will. So the process of coming to know God better through Jesus Christ is not a process of saying, I just need to pursue a a greater morality. I just need to list some more rules on my wall. I just need to try and try and try harder and harder and harder. But instead, the process of coming to know God deeper in Jesus Christ is this process of more deeply submitting to the power of the Spirit that lives within me. To wake up day by day And move through my day moment by moment. And I say, God, through the spirit that lives within me, teach me what I need to say in representation of Jesus. Show me where I need to go. Help me understand what I need to do. So that the scripture is clear. That the leadership and the power that we see in Jesus and that we have in the spirit. It's greater than they had under Moses. It's more glorious, and it's better. Moses brought the law. Jesus brings life. So what do we do with this then as we move out from here and as we move into the season where we're going to celebrate Jesus? I want to offer a couple of thoughts. The first one is simply this. Throughout this season, center your life on Jesus. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're in the room and you don't know that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it may be that you are in the room, you walked in the room and you thought, you know what, I know that, I, that I'm good with God because I'm trying my best. I'm trying to be a person who does what the Bible says, who does what God wants me to do. I try to be kind. I try not to do those things that are wrong. And so I, I trust that I'm okay with God. And what the scripture says is now that you could never do enough. You can never be good enough. The only way to be right with God is to trust in his son, Jesus Christ. That he died to pay the penalty of all of our sin where we have fallen short and we've disobeyed God. And then he rose again. And he promises eternal life to all who trust in him. So that if somebody says, how do you know that you know God and have eternal life? The right answer for all of us ought to be, because I have placed my faith in the Son of God. And if you know him, as you hop on the treadmill over the next couple of weeks and run through the Christmas season, buying presents, setting up your tree, trying to get your kids to finish school with a passing average, whatever it may be. You pause. And you say, I want to spend some time today. I say, God, lead me. God, empower me through your spirit, through the spirit of Jesus Christ, to do your will, to reflect Jesus Christ, because that's what God's people have always wanted to do. And you've given us the glorious spirit to be able to do it. And then with your family, with your spouse, with your kids, with your roommates, you pause at these key moments as you open presents, perhaps, to remember the greatest gift of God in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you, you pop open a devotional or the scripture, 
and you remind one another of what God did. That he gave his son Jesus because we needed him desperately. And then secondly, let me encourage you to look for opportunities this season to tell people the good news about Jesus. I tend to think that at this time of year, people are probably more open to conversations about the holidays, about spiritual matters, about God, maybe than any other time of the year. Because they're already hearing these old Christmas carols that speak of Jesus. They're already seeing people celebrate Christmas and perhaps wondering what it's about. Not to mention people are just feeling lighter often, more willing to talk, or they're feeling darker and more willing to talk. And so my prayer is that as we approach God each morning that we would also pray, God, lead me to those who need to know this, this good news, that this, this really happened, that the second person of the Trinity, the Word became flesh. This really happened. It's not just a story we tell each other to get through the holidays. He entered history. He died for our sin. He rose again. So that the glory God shows us in Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than anything we see with Moses because of who he is and all he's done. Will we look for opportunities and pray for opportunities to share that story this year? Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. We are thankful for the word. We believe, Father, that Jesus was with you in the beginning. And that Jesus is God. And we believe that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He took on flesh and bone. To show us who you are. And how to know you. We want to hear that message that you proclaim to us in Jesus Christ. That you love us infinitely. And you want us to know you. I pray that we would be a kingdom of priests. Who proclaim and represent Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.